More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is the 26th of January, 2020, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBBR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Kayla Delventhal. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages and podcast. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Winston Kennedy. He's a third-year PhD student in the kinesiology program. He's also the vice president of uh, CGE, the Coalition for Graduate Employee, our student union for social justice. And he is also a statewide competitor in Olympic weightlifting. Winston, welcome to the show. What's good? What's good? Happy to be here. Okay. So um, I should also mention at the top of this episode that Winston is also going to be one of our Grad Inspire speakers. That is a TED-style talk where you will be giving a really awesome speech to a room full of people in Memorial Union on March 3rd at 6 o'clock. Be there, be square. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be a square. Just come. Just come. Yeah, Yeah. just come. Um, Okay, so you're in the kinesiology program, and you're also a practicing physical therapist since 2015. So before we get started with exactly what your research is here at Oregon State, can you tell us about what kinds of people you would see in in your practice, really? Um, Before I came to Oregon, I was working in acute and outpatient. It was... um, some hospitals have both. And then I started out in acute, so basically when people were admitted to the hospital, I'd go in, make, make sure they can get moving early because a lot of the research now is, you know, the sooner you get up and moving, the better. Previously it was, you know, rest, rest for days, months, years even, and then start to try to get moving, which brings on a whole host of things. So acute physical therapy is a thing. As soon as you get sick, the best thing to do is to get moving. And then I start slowly transitioned into the outpatient wing of the hospital. And there I saw the full spectrum of people that you could see. Um, young kids as young as four or five years old up until my oldest patient was 100 and, 108. What? Yeah. And the patient who was 108 only came in because she was walking and got ran over by a skateboarder. <gasps> and she oh no. bruised her leg and... <laughs> Wanted to get back to walking and doing her regular activities, so. Oh my yeah. goodness! Whoa, did she get back on her feet? Yeah, she was doing really well. She was, That's she awesome. was hilarious. Yeah. 
Um, whoa. Okay. So from four years old to 108. Yeah, um, and that's that's not even within that range was a whole bunch slew of, you know, diagnose, diagnoses from, um, you know, stereotypical uh, twisted ankle, hurt knee to, you know, various surgeries to neurological disorders like uh, stroke, uh, Parkinson's disorder, multiple sclerosis. So, yeah. Um. Okay, this is funny because I just sprained my ankle. I'm getting getting better from it. A couple uh, months ago, uh, I messed up my knee, had a lot uh, of physical therapy. And uh, then many, many moons ago, I don't think I've told uh, either of you, but I've actually had two hip surgeries. What? Yeah, and that was at the time when they said you must rest for a couple months and then you can start moving. Yeah. Um, but I've been doing physical therapy pretty much oh, wow. my whole life, and I didn't uh, even realize it because I'm always like stretching and doing weird things. Like, yeah. Why do I do that? Because my, th- my physical therapist told me I should, and it's helping. So. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, you know, also, before we begin with your research at Oregon State, I think it's really helpful to look back to a patient of yours from Florida, mm-hmm. and we're going to use a pseudonym by the name of Jenny. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about um, her story and how her story is kind of impacted and the reason why you came to Oregon State to do research? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I will say I, I, I've had various patients who've impacted my life in some way just with interacting with them, but Jenny was really significant because like you said it really had it really influenced me to come back to school um so jenny was in her late 50s uh early 60s um and she uh had a a stroke or cva cerebrovascular accidents a lot of different names for similar things um and it left her with uh hemiparesis or one side of her body was weaker than the rest with some other things and uh, when I started working with her, she was still in the early stages. Um, she had just got released from the hospital, and um, she was just trying to get readjusted to her new life. Well, speaking of, mm-hmm. her previous life was mm-hmm. one of really strong independence. Yeah, she was a single woman living on her own, working, doing as she pleases. Um, from what she was telling me, she was having a good time, and then all of a sudden, bam, she had a stroke, and then everything changed. She didn't plan for it. It wasn't expected. Her health was generally okay, and then you know she had a stroke. Okay, so um, so she she moves from this state of you know pretty strong independence. Uh-huh. She moves to and from her job, mm-hmm. job she more or less enjoys. Uh-huh. She has a stroke. Mm-hmm. Half of her body is a little bit weakened, uh-huh. and that's where you come into the picture. Yeah. So yeah. So basically, work can't do that work anymore. She has to move. Because because of, you know, that new onset of, you know, that her, her weakness on one side, um, she can't live on her, live by herself right now. She can't, you know, she can't take care of herself, like, safely. So she had to move into a group home where she got some extra care. Um, but with these types of homes, it's not someone with you 24-7 um, making sure you're doing everything. It's, all right, did you get out of bed? Did you get a shower? Do you need to use the bathroom? All right, that's it. Everything like, else, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You'll get, we'll take you to the dining area where the food is, you know what I mean? But other than that, you're pretty much on your own. Um, so when I was working with her, the biggest thing was, you know, trying to get her to do stuff on her own. But with, you know, with in her case, you have to consider what that means and how she can do that, you know what I mean? And the sad part is not every, you know, physical therapist, healthcare provider, healthcare professional takes that into consideration. It's... It can for some healthcare professionals is very black and white, very objective. Like, this is what you need to do. Find a way to do it. Bam. 
You know what I mean? But, you know, not everyone is equipped to do that. In, in Jenny's case, she wasn't equipped to do that. And so a lot of what we did was um, we would do work, a lot of physical exercises and different activities, but a lot was just talking about how she was doing, how she felt, what things she could do um, on her own, what things she felt comfortable with, mm-hmm. and um, trying to problem solve around that. And um, everything was actually going well until, you know, I went on vacation, <laughs> you know, silly me trying to get some vacation. Mm-hmm. And then um, she saw a different therapist. And when I came back, I noticed uh, she was acting a little different. Energy was a little different. Her vibe was different. So we were talking and I was like, what's going on? You know, I know, I know sometimes she has her up and down days, but this was different. So I asked her, she's like, well, you know, um, I worked with a couple of different people when you were gone and they were, they kind of, she said they belittled her because they said she wasn't doing enough at home. She wasn't trying to walk at home and get up out and, you know, just do more, you know, at her home. And and then I think one of the therapists actually called her stupid. Ooh. Yeah. And that's really like, you know, got to me. It's like how one, how could you talk to another individual like that? But how knowing this woman's situation, how could you talk down to her mm-hmm. like that? So it was like double layered. So I got to talking with her again, you know, just back in the same mode of trying to talk to her and talk to her. And um, I, for me, I understood why she may not be able to do certain things at home. One, the number one thing that anyone will tell you is if you don't feel safe or confident enough to do any type of activity, then you shouldn't do it. She was still learning how to walk comfortably. So it wasn't safe for her to try to get up and walk on her own at home. Um, because so if she would have a fall, fall on her everything own. gets worse. Mm-hmm. She could break her hip and that sets her months right. back or she may not even be able to do the little walking she's doing now, you know, ever, you know, that recovery, who knows what that recovery looks like. So, um, yeah, so it, it would have been great if she had those opportunities to do more intense stuff at home, but that's just mm-hmm. not her situation. That's just, that's not the society we live in. Everyone doesn't have the opportunity. And so when we're talking about these things to do at home, um, we're talking about just regular motions that are now hard for her, but then also, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but uh, some of the format of physical physical therapy is taking what you learn when you're at the office or uh, the practice and trying to do it at your own, uh, on your own time at yes. home. Yes. But for somebody who doesn't feel safe, how can they do these small exercises? So that, this is sort of the problem you're seeing, yeah? A 100%. Um, even even for you know for smaller exercises. So if I wanted her to do, you know something maybe on a machine, like where would she go to do that? Right. right. Like it's just certain. Like it does doesn't for certain people for certain populations it doesn't transition well unless you know I'm there, and that's not a sustainable model for a lot of people. A physical a, tra- a skilled physical therapist. If you want that costs a lot of time and money. And, you know, everyone can afford to just have physical therapists come and work with them, you know, offhand and then come into a facility and do physical therapy. That's not a sustainable model for for care and health. You know what I mean? So there needs to be other ways to get other populations up and moving because, you know, physical therapists have a lot of expertise, but there are other professionals, there are other people who can come in and provide some support and help for, you know, the same populations. 
So to put some meat on this, I'm actually mm-hmm. thinking of my own experience because I'm very selfish. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I had to do for, you know, a, a bummed ankle was, mm-hmm. you know, stand on something that was unstable. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, in the physical therapy's office, they yeah. have that like half ball. Oh, well, your like, BOSU. Yeah, the BOSU, BOSU ball. ball. You know, yeah. it's like, well, stand on this. Like, well, this is great. Yeah. I can do this for the 30 minutes that I'm there. Yeah. But like, what can I do when I'm at home? Because I don't have no yeah, Bosu yeah, ball, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. just get a bunch of pillows, and that's like really unstable. And stand yeah. on your pillows. It's like, well, now my pillows smell like feet. But that's another problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but that's that's one of the examples of the thing, the exercises you would do in the physical therapist's office uh-huh. don't necessarily translate well to nah, being at home. Nah, not not necessarily for for a lot of people. And I think I think that's the big thing which you'll see is people will continuously go to physical therapy if they have the opportunity to, which is a good thing. I think having that type of supervision and support is good. And it's great for my profession because, you know, we get reimbursed for that. But can it be, is it as efficacious, is it as sustainable or is that a sustainable model? You know what I mean? Because, you know, I'm a doctor to physical therapy. Like, do I want to, you know, watch people do these exercises that I've already instructed them in to me a better model would be more of the you know kind of like your primary care physician model i can give you a program i can show you how to do it and then you know if you know if you had the support if you had the the if it was accessible you can go do it yourself for a couple months then we can come back reevaluate and check in but would i want you to come to me three times a week for the rest of your life Uh, no no (laughs) Uh, I'd like to, I'd love to see you for the rest of your life to provide that support. But like once every few months, you know, or if the emergency mm-hmm. comes in, you can check in with me as a primary care provider of, you know, of your physical activity of like your, of your body, of your physical body for sure. But, you know, some people want someone with them consistently two to three times a week for two to three hours. I personally don't think a physical therapy model is sustainable for that. Mm. So let's uh, let's go back to this Jenny example. And mm-hmm. uh, again, we're using a, a pseudonym here, but Jenny's example has this experience where if you're just thinking with your physical therapist hat, you have, you know, ways to make, you know, half of her body stronger by, mm-hmm. you know, physical strengthening exercises. But as you had mentioned, you were talking with her a lot about how she's doing. Mm-hmm the work you were doing is a lot more than just the physical strengthening of the body, but also the kind of remediation of the mind as well. Definitely. And I am, I was no way in any shape or form counseling (laughs) or providing any type of therapy on purpose. No, (laughs) not at all. Anyways, out of my school of practice was not doing that. I would just provide a friendly ear while I was doing the physical therapy piece. But To your point, though, like the the mental and the physical side, they go hand in hand. And if, you know, if if her or anyone is not in the right mindset, there's only a limited benefit you can get from doing any type of physical activity, physical function. Because if your mind's not there, the effort you put in is not there. So, you know what I mean? What's really getting done. So if if she's not prepared to work hard, this you know, there's only so much I can do. And going back to the example of when you... Uh, went on vacation and you had another physical therapist, you know, uh, help her, you already knew that she couldn't do certain exercises at home because you had actually talked to her. You you built some rapport and you knew like, okay, she probably couldn't walk on her own just because she doesn't have somebody there with her. But the other physical therapist, they, they may not have known that, 
but it only take or it required that kind of uh, rapport building for you to figure out like okay these are the exercises you can do yes these are the ones I should expect you to improve on yeah and these others maybe not so much yeah exactly and what I would do is I would check in like oh did you try to do anything at home what was going on and she was in my opinion she was doing a lot she'd tell me about her transfers to the bathroom and things of that nature getting in out of bed and here uh, you know for me and you that might sound like oh yeah I do that every day but you know when someone you know has a stroke and is relearning how to use their body doing those things every day is is a major task mm-hmm. and the fact that she was trying to do those on her own to me was a big milestone a big win because what you might see is people get hopeless and they'll just rely on everyone oh they'll come and do it for me they'll help me get up you know what I mean that definitely wasn't her mindset and um so we were working towards you know building up to potentially getting her to maybe try to walk on her own but unless I felt safe with her doing that I would not recommend that for her and, so. and this is like a trust that you need to build, right? Because anybody yeah. that's been injured knows it doesn't feel good to admit that you can't do something. Mm-hmm. So building this rapport with your patient means that you can get the real information on, on how she's doing and make oh, sure yeah. she feels comfortable. That way you can make a real plan. Oh, definitely. It's working. Yes, because yeah. people will lie. Did you do all this stuff? Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because that doesn't feel good either. It's like, did you do your homework? And it's like, oh, yeah, totally. I, yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, right. And there's no real way for me to check. But, you know, I don't know when I see you're not making progress. So, and then, and then it'll become this thing where I think you're lying. Well, no, I'm not lying. And then everything's in shambles now because everyone's <laughs> arguing it with each other. So, yeah, I mean, you got to build the trust so we can have, if you're not doing it, that's okay. Just we can figure out why and then mm-hmm. we can address it because a lot of times there's a reason why you're not doing right. this stuff. So the Jenny example is this trifecta of uh, what you had mentioned before is this biopsychosocial approach where mm-hmm. you have to look at the 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 physical therapy aspect, uh-huh. the, the strength, but then you also have to look at, you know, what's, what's her mindset? What are her limitations physically, limitations at mm-hmm. home? Yeah. And let's expand out from that Jenny example to hone in on your research. All right. And what you're looking at is not everybody that can benefit from physical therapy mm-hmm. actually will get a physical therapy referral because there's a kind of kink in this process. Oh, definitely. Tell us about that. Um, so, yeah, right now in most states in the U.S., you need a referral to see a physical therapist if you want it to be, if you want it to be covered by insurance. Um, some states have, it's called direct access, so you can go to a physical therapist and um, your insurance will cover it up to a set amount, and then you have to get a referral. Um, if you want to pay out of pocket, which, you know, who wants to pay out of pocket for healthcare? Yikes. Um, you can just go in and see a therapist and work something out. But again, you know, it's not the cheapest thing. And people see, most of the time when you see a physical therapist, if it's for, you know, a month, two months, three months, you have to go fairly consistently two to three times a week. Um, so it can, it's, it's not a cheap thing. But also... Um, those, the, the primary care physicians uh, won't necessarily prescribe physical therapy for everyone that uh, can benefit. Yeah, I've seen, I've heard some of the wonkiest things from various primary care providers. Anywhere from, uh, you know, physical therapy is not a real thing. <laughs> um, yeah, everything. I, I laugh really hard because I've, I've been doing physical therapy my whole life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, time heals everything, so you don't need to do it. What else? I actually had the craziest, I had a cardiologist. He was having some issues with his legs. 
and he was older. He was on his way to retire, and he was referred to physical therapy. <laughs> <laughs> After about a week, I'm talking to him, and he's like, oh, man, I didn't know this worked. Whoa. I feel great. I should have been doing this for a long time. And I'm like, really? You're, you're a medical doctor. You're an experienced cardiologist. Mm-hmm. And you, this whole time, thought physical therapy was a sham. And now that you've gone through it, now you're a believer? Man, you're sorry for the patient you came in contact <laughs> yeah. with before. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we had mentioned this when we were talking before because I, I had an experience with physical therapy when I was younger, and it blew my mind. It worked great for me, so I sort of just grew up with this mindset that it's fantastic. And mm-hmm. then I met other people that got injured, and I was like, well, why don't you just go to physical therapy? And, um, and so you explained that. Also, there's a lot of variation, just like there's for any doctor Mm -hmm. in how your physical therapist is with you. Um, And we can draw on from this last uh, part of the conversation where sometimes the rapport is not there or maybe Mm -hmm. even experience. But um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the experience you get with, you know, from physical therapist to physical therapist can vary widely. And I think it kind of depends on what you want, who you should see. Like, I remember we talked and it was like if you're young and you're still if you're trying to be fairly active like play you know basketball hike rock climb some physical therapists may not be suited to get you back to do that and there are some along with other prof- other healthcare professionals who are extremely suited to do that you know what i mean so mm-hmm. it just kind of depends and then so and that comes into play with you know health literacy and so understanding what certain providers can do for you and trying to figure that out. If you go to a provider and and you say you want to get back to playing basketball and you're like, oh, my knees hurt. And they say, well, just stop playing basketball. You need to find someone else <laughs> because that's not that's not a solution. Anytime someone tells you just stop doing something and that's their answer. I think you, you should get a second opinion. On that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I got a second opinion because now I'm running all the time and playing soccer yeah, and rock I mean, climbing. Yeah, oftentimes you don't really need to stop doing something. You might need to adapt or change. Mm-hmm. Uh, even sometimes you might just need to acutely adapt or change and you can get back to the regular thing. But there, I don't think there's, there's very few things that you might actually have to stop doing for your health. Mm-hmm. Very few. Oftentimes there's a kind of something going on, you address it, you should be okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's dial in a little bit tighter on your research because it's actually dealing with a specific subpopulation that uh, tend to have mobility limitations, but uh-huh. uh, primary care physicians won't always recommend physical therapy for these patients. Yeah, so um, my research is basically um, I want to create op- create more opportunities for individuals with disabilities to engage in physical activity, um, trying to increase the access the access. So I've taken the route of, of using healthcare providers as, you know, that advocate or that, that person who can say, yes, you can do these things. But a lot of, a lot of the literature is showing that healthcare providers aren't great at doing that for various reasons. Um, so, yeah. So uh, as an example, Mm -hmm. um, I think we had used this once when we spoke earlier uh, you know, you go into to your doctor's office mm. and let's say you have, you know, a, a missing limb or a uh, damaged limb. Yeah. They won't always recommend physical therapy, even yeah. though they can significantly benefit. Yeah. So a lot of times um, it, 
So how we interpret people's health can, like I said before, can vary, you know, healthcare provider, healthcare provider. And if a healthcare provider, you know, a primary care physician doesn't really know, like, the full scope of what you want to do and the full scope of how to address it, they'll probably just be like, you know, well, you probably shouldn't do that and end it there. And that sometimes happens to a lot of people with uh, disabilities because for a long time, you know, being being labeled as disabled meant, you know, you shouldn't do much. And when you look at a lot of the literature, like a lot of the literature around individuals for multiple sclerosis, for a long time, people thought that they should not engage in physical activity because it would exacerbate or make their symptoms worse. When, you know, come to find out that's not true, they can... they. I, uh, individuals with multiple sclerosis actually benefit extremely hmm. from physical activity, just from increasing their physical function and to that social aspect that we keep talking about. Um, being around other people and, you know, and benefiting from that. We actually have the multiple sclerosis exercise clinic on campus here at OSU. Aren't you the director? I was the director. I got My the, goodness, yeah. you're a modern day renaissance man. Yeah, just well, a little bit. For, for those of us bit. just joining us, this is 88.7 KBVR FM. We are speaking to Winston Kennedy. He's a PhD student in the kinesiology program. And he's describing uh, some of his research in looking at how physical therapy can help uh, patients with mobility limitations. And um, you're mentioning how the literature is kind of changing in, in, in recent time, or maybe we're just becoming aware of how physical activity can benefit some of these patients, mm. for example, with multiple sclerosis. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I think a lot of that uh, research is becoming, it's coming more accessible about what's going on. And I think also people with disabilities are, are using their voice a lot more and letting it be known we want to do these things, right? So like here we have the adaptive physical activity option in kinesiology, which I'm in, which is all geared towards, you know, finding and creating opportunities for individual disabilities across the lifespan to engage in physical activity. And it's, to me, it's a pretty simple model because we use it for, you know, individuals without disabilities, right? So say all three of us, you know what I mean? We're going to go play basketball. We are all have different skill set, right? So, you know what I mean? If I can't shoot, if, you know, if I can't shoot a three, they'll tell me, all right, you shoot closer to the hoop. That's the adaptation. And I'm five five, so I'm gonna stay really far away from the hoop. And I'm I, five one, so yeah, we'll be passing to each other on the <laughs> yeah. outside of the key. Yeah, you might throw it to me. In the court, <laughs> yeah. Right? Or if everyone is slower, we might say, you know, what? we're not gonna play a full court game. Let's play a half court game because it's a, mm -hmm. it's a little bit slower. Or if all of us are out of shape, we'll say, let's just play twenty one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So we make adjustments according to our abilities all the time. But mm -hmm. it's in a context which, you know, the majority of able-bodied people understand. When you come, you, you have this individual who uh, does things a little bit differently for, for certain people. It becomes like, oh, I don't know. And then it's like, well, I don't think they can't do what I can do. So they probably can't do anything. Hmm. And you describe this in one of your recent publications. And I'm going to quote directly from it where you state the majority of students with uh, these are um, uh, elementary and you know, children. Yeah, yeah, K through 12. K through 12. The majority of students with disabilities are placed in general education classrooms for 80% or more of their time in school. So you go on to describe in that paper how um, PE teachers aren't necessarily, um, aren't 
they, they don't have this, the, the skill set to be able to include these students in the you know, everyday activities because the schooling they got may not have maybe emphasized that nearly as much as it should have. Yeah, yeah, to an extent. Um, so that paper, that was actually one of the first papers I published, only maybe the only paper I published. The <laughs> so first paper I published, you know, here, and it was great because it really gave me a, a foundation of what's kind of going on, especially um, in the in health education, physical education realm, um, which I wasn't too familiar with before coming here. And um, so physical educators do a really great job of trying to teach individuals, you know, skills to be physically active for the rest of their life. Um, but it, it turns out that tr when trying to include students with disabilities, they're having a harder time because of some of the things you might have mentioned before. Um, it may they have like this set curriculum of how to teach this certain group of students, and that leaves this other group of students left out. So what that paper is kind of is trying to introduce is how you can create an accessible curriculum for all students, and that's just kind of being aware that this this spectrum of student abilities is this wide. And if you incorporate those in the in the beginning, when you have those students with different needs and different abilities, it's easier to include them. So like including this typical in the literature, an example of how traditionally students with disability students with disabilities were included was okay, you can keep score while everyone else plays basketball. Mm. <laughs> right? That's quote unquote being included, but Exactly. Or, you know, you can throw the ball in while everyone's playing soccer. You know what I mean? And then what my paper is showing, actually kind of introducing, why do we need to play soccer and basketball, you know, especially when, you know, you have probably not even this kid, all these kids who might not want to play that or know how to play that. What do you, you know, K through 12 physical education is trying to teach you skills to, so you can do a variety of things. You know what I mean? And that, so like in basketball, you need to be able to run up and down the court you need to be able to move louder and forward. You need to be able to toss a ball. You can incorporate all these things in different ways for different people. It may not look like basketball the way, you know, we know it, but that's okay. Because if you're teaching the skills, it can translate into basketball and it can translate into something else for another student. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how you can be more inclusive in that context. And speaking of, uh, it, if I read this correctly, it looks like OSU has a wheelchair basketball league. Yeah, they just started. That started up when I f first got here. I think they, it's a wheelchair basketball intramural league. I played it one year, but it tore up my hands. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, oh. You uh, need to go rock climbing more. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And then also in the general equipment area, I have written down here that they have some some supports to kind of get around a little bit easier in the general equipment area. Or like the equipment is spaced a little bit further apart. So that if you have a wheelchair, you can easily move in and out of the space. Yeah, definitely. And um, and I think those are some of the considerations that a lot of facilities could make if they were just aware. A lot of it is just lack of awareness for those type of situations. Mm -hmm. And um, OSU does OSU does attempt to be more inclusive. Could they do a better job for sure? But you know, baby steps. Speaking of baby steps, uh, tell us the first time that you had to be on crutches. Oh, I was on crutches for about a year when I was at, uh, when I was an undergrad at Hampton University. That is a undergraduate school in Virginia. 
Um, I played football there for, would have been four years, but that last year I was on crutches. Um, yeah, and it was just a horrible experience. Mm. When I think back, it was like I had to walk up and down stairs when not being able to use, uh, not being able to use one leg on crutches. I fell a whole bunch of times. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was just an awful experience. And when I think back, it made me realize like this environment is not built for someone who has you know m mobility challenges, and like. It makes me feel for all the students who did have that while I was going there. It was like, yeah. Yeah, do you think that experience set up a foundation for your mindset when you went into working in physical therapy? It's, it's hard to say because I didn't, mm -hmm. really, I didn't really shift into this mindset until I got, when I was actually working with the population mm -hmm. and I just kept hearing the same things. Like I wanna do these things, I wanna do these things, but where and how, where and how. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. While at Hampton University, mm -hmm. uh, that's where you kind of figured out, maybe by accident, uh, that physical therapy was an option. Yeah, so I got to Hampton, well, I'll start from high school. I played, I'm from, it's a city called Miramar, from Miramar, Florida, it's right outside Miami. So I usually just tell people Miami to forego that whole spiel I just gave right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I played football there. And I got a football scholarship. So at the time, I was like, you know, I'm going to be a big football star. I don't really care about nothing else. Um, but my guidance counselor was like, oh, so what are you going to do if football doesn't work out? I was like, what you mean? If football's going to work out, I'm not worried about it. She said, you know what? You should think about physical therapy. You like being physically active. You like sports. A lot of that incorporates it. So I was like, cool. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to Hampton there, it was like, you know, what you want to major in? I was like, I think uh, what has to do with physical therapy. Uh, my athletic advisor, she was like, oh, that sounds like, you know, it's with healthcare, right? I was like, yeah. She's like, oh, you should do biology. That's, that'll cover all your bases. I was like, cool. After one semester, I went to her and adamantly mm -hmm. suggested to not do biology. I didn't, you know, all have four-hour labs. I was playing football. They wanted me to do zoology and botany. I didn't know nothing about that. <laughs> I, I actually love this too because I am TAing one of the botany or no, sorry, biology introductory courses right uh, now. Yeah. And it's really tough for the students. And I remember when I was taking biology, there was sort of this um, message that was like, oh, you know, they're just trying to weed out the people and get the people that are serious in, in biology. But it's so wrong because, I mean, you're just a, such an awesome example of this accomplished person doing amazing things. And you were just like, this sucks. But also like four, <laughs> hour, like four hour labs while you're expected yeah. to do morning yeah, practice and not, evening practice. It doesn't fit everyone. Yeah. It just doesn't. No, yeah. yeah. And I like, I like that you said that because that kind of sentiment is so present in education, especially in higher education, like we need to weed out the weak from the, and I'm like, it's not, I don't really think there's a weak and a strong <laughs> when it comes no, to education. Not. It's just like some people enjoy certain things. So you put more effort into it. And if you're making a situation mm -hmm. unenjoyable, I'm not going to put much effort into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean, although Sounds I'll say it's shifting a bit. I was, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this when we were talking about, um, how perceptions are changing. I think, uh, just as we're becoming, we're trying to get accessibility into something like a PE class, uh -huh. um, classrooms now too, I'm in one of the teaching programs and we're always talking about, um, instead of just doing this lecture format that is geared toward able hearing, people that can see, just this general person, can we make it more inclusive from the start? 
you know so it's like this theme that's just popping up everywhere yeah definitely needed yeah definitely i think for me i've come into oregon state i've really took on this kind of accessibility for for all and i think everything you just said kind of hits and not just physical activity but all things especially in education and like the literature on accessibility for individuals with disabilities in higher education is just as bad as accessibility for physical activity in the communities, right? I think the the success rate of individuals with disabilities is like what twenty percent, thirty percent empirically, you know. Come so just because there's a lot of social factors, sense of belonging, sense of community and culture you know, access, you know, to just the classroom, mm-hmm. even in the social and built environment. So these things kind of cross over to a lot of different contexts. And my, the biggest thing is I don't think no individual in society should be exclude, excluded from main things, health, education. You know I mean, those are things to me, if you're, you're entitled to, to, you're entitled to that, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Right. And, but Right now, everyone's not given those opportunities to even get a chance sometimes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But although biology was the worst for you, you did get around <laughs> it. So what was the other well, avenue? Well, I, t- I had to take biology <laughs> class. Okay, so, so I you took did. the class. I just didn't take, I couldn't go through the whole major. I just couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So I majored, so I, so I talked to my advisor and she's like, I think of, I had someone who uh, majored in psychology and took PT prereqs. So I was like, cool, sign me up. And I ended up loving psychology, um, and it really helped me a lot. When I took abnormal psych, that was the first time I heard of anxiety. And then I was like, oh, so that's what I feel for like five seconds in the beginning of a football game? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, and I think it kind of helped me when I got to physical therapy. It helped me realize that people are people. You know, everyone's dealing with a lot, and you have to, I guess, empathize or try to understand and try to appreciate that. People are individuals, they feel things, they're going to go through things, they're, all, they're always not going to feel great. And I think, you know, having that background in psychology kind of helped me understand that. And then, but it doesn't help me understand, like, certain colleagues, because they're a lot more kind of rigid with their patients. And I'm like, it feels a lot easier to kind of be open and flexible with your patients than mm. this or that. Yeah, different style. Yeah, different style. Hmm. Um, to put in another plug for your program, so you're... Hmm. Um, you're advised by Dr. Sam Logan, mm-hmm. and Dr. Logan also does a Go Baby Go program. Yeah. Can you briefly mention that? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Sam, you Logan's my sensei. That's what I call him. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, molding and mentoring me. Um, so he uh, he did a postdoc at the University of Delaware under a physical therapist, Dr. Cole Galloway. And that's when he got into the Go Baby Go, which is essentially, this is just a real crude summary of it. They basically um, take children with uh, various disabilities and put them in modified, you know, toy cars, those little Tonka toys. Um, they they modify it um, to make it easier to drive and navigate. And it gives them an opportunity to explore their environment because um, a lot of the research suggests that that's where they get a lot of their cognitive growth is when they're exploring and playing and experimenting. But kids with disabilities don't get those opportunities because of the physical limitations. So to circumvent that, you know, you use those cars. Um, there's been some pushback in the health and rehab world because there's this idea, oh, well, if they're in this car, they're not moving as much. They're not trying to walk. Mm-hmm. 
so that holds them back. When that's not true, um, there is no there's no gap in physical ability learning when you use the car. But just that idea, because it's different, you know what I mean? Some people are like, no, it does that. So we interviewed Christina Hospodar, who was one of Sam Logan's students back in May of 2018. Uh, You can find that interview in our podcast feed under Inspiration Dissemination and Apple iTunes. mm -hmm. And Christina described how there's like three versions of this car where Mm -hmm. um, it's like a big red button that children learn to press. Mm -hmm. And then from that big red button, you know, you transition to you must stand up in the car in order for it to move. So it teaches the kids how to stand up. And then the third iteration is like... um, like a, uh, let me think. It's like a framework on the back of the car that the child will uh, will essentially uh, use their hands to hold onto and then push the car forward, so that there's they can use one car and have three iterations to help the child kind of move progressively through their mobility limitations. And that car is two hundred bucks. Yeah. And the actual you know healthcare provided uh, mobility device is like ten grand. Yeah. So there's a gap that this is obviously filling and helping individuals, especially at a really pivotal moment early in childhood. A hundred percent. And um, yeah, in my opinion, a lot of there's a lot of great medical equipment to your last point about the cost price, cost difference. There's a lot of great, awesome metal equipment coming out. I see it on, you know, the PT groups on Facebook, all types of exoskeletons and different types of. <laughs> wheelchairs that stand up and all these types of things. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. And then I'm like, how much is it going to cost? Because mm. if this costs 5000 10000 15000 how many people are really going to be able to afford to use that to benefit from it? Mm. So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but it almost mm. seems like if people won't have, again, access, if people don't have access, access to it, then what's the point? Well, that's why you plan on being a, a researcher and continue in the healthcare industry to kind of break down some of these barriers to access. Yeah, I hope so. Now, if I don't get blackballed, or kicked out first. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to learn more about Winston's work and Winston's story, uh, again, he's going to be one of the Grad Inspire speakers on March 3rd, 2020 of this year. It'll be held in the MU. Um, you don't want to miss that. Uh, but I think we'll begin to close off this interview because we can't give everything away. Nah, gotta mm-hmm. leave something. There's a lot more. We got. I didn't really dive into the personal side. I got some personal oh. stuff to tell. Some more. I'll dive in a lot more to the research. It'll be a fun time. Can't wait. Yeah. You know, I'm taking donations too, so bring some donations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing though. JK. JK, JK. Um, before we end the show, we always end with, uh, with two things. And the first is we ask you for advice. So what is your advice and to whom is it for? My advice would be to... My fellow students, you know, keep pushing, keep working hard. You know, it's not always going to be easy. They're going to be roadblocks. Roadblocks are going to be put up uh, in front of you by, you know, people who you thought were going to be trying to help you. Just keep pushing forward. Keep your head up. I'm here. I always tell people this. I mean it. You know, you see my email. You can email me. You can call at me. I'm always around campus. Happy to chat. Talk about whatever. Um, just keep pushing. Keep your head up. Keep working. You know, the one thing I can say about Oregon State is the students are very passionate. I worked with ASOSU with undergraduate students who were just, who blew me away. And just with, they want to make change. And I see that across the, the board with a lot of students. So just keep your head up, keep pushing. Nice. We also have a second tradition. 
and that is to outro you with a song. So what song did you choose and why? Oh, I chose Roddy Rich the Box because I don't know, it just gets me hyped. It just gets me hyped, especially when like something's going on and I don't feel like working. Put that tune on and I'll just, just crank it out. Well, on a, on a Sunday evening, I'm sure a lot of students are over at the library. So you know what? Here it is, Roddy Rich. Roddy Rich, I need some, some residuals on that, please. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.